Good to have you back. I'm glad to be back. Some of you all may have had this flu bug too. I was just praying for a light case. And I got one. The Lord answered my prayer. And a light case of the flu is great. Because uh, if you have a nice wife like I do, you're just sitting there in bed and she's bringing you soup. You're reading whatever you want to read and you don't have to go to the office, you know. And uh, so it really, uh, a little bit of sickness goes a long way, actually. Uh, so I'm glad to be back, though. Missed you guys. I, I hear that Larry did his usual great job and that uh, we all learned a lot more about Memphis uh, last week, which is important because we're talking about uh, the mission of Christ's disciples. In the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about the character of Christ's disciples. But now we know that we're supposed to take that character into the world, into Memphis, uh, into our nation, and into the world. And that's not an easy task at all. And in Jesus' teaching on this matter, we're going to see that it's very contemporary, very relevant for us. He was teaching his disciples that they must go, they must be engaged in this mission, And he explains to them in this sermon on mission, as we'll study later on next week and the week after, that they're going to face tremendous opposition. And he's going to teach them that they shall not be afraid uh, because uh, we'll we'll see why they shall not be afraid when when we look at the rest of this mission sermon. Uh, We, uh, two weeks ago, did not finish sort of the introductory uh, verses before Jesus actually began his sermon on mission. And that's in Matthew 9. And let's pick it back up there. And let me just read that again so that we, we have it in our heads. This would be Matthew 9, 35 through uh, 38. And uh, I think uh, we'll, uh, you, I don't know if you have your notes from last week, but I believe on the overhead we'll pick up where we left off. Uh, here's, here's Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Now we saw in uh, chapter 5 through 7 how he went about teaching and preaching. There's a good example of it. And then we noted that in chapters 8 and 9, you have many of Jesus' wonderful miracles that he performed. So we saw his healing and casting out demons in chapters 8 and 9. So there you you have a wonderful example of of the ministry of Jesus. We also noticed that that ministry is bookended by verses very similar to this in chapter 4, uh, verse 23, and then here at the end of that section. So that whole section of 5 through uh, 9 is being comprehended by those verses. Now verse 36. When he saw the crowds, and this is where we want to pick up today because we just covered one verse two weeks ago. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, so we we said uh, uh, two weeks ago that what we learn in verse 35 is, first of all, we go where Jesus goes. And secondly, we do what Jesus does. And that is teaching, preaching, and healing. And we noticed various things about his teaching that we, we wanted to observe that are important for us in our teaching. We want to imitate Jesus uh, if we're teaching. And all of us are teaching. If we have anybody under our influence, we're teaching. But some of us more explicitly than others. And I'd like to encourage you again to aspire to be the best teacher you can be and uh, to use teaching opportunities that come your way. 
And then we notice the difference between teaching and preaching, that it is imperative rather than indicative, it is hortatory rather than didactic, it is proclamation versus explanation, and it's theocratic versus autocratic. But above all, we notice that uh, the essence of preaching is the proclamation of the kingdom. So we're announcing that there's been a, a regime change from the devil to Christ. Christ has taken over and his kingdom has come and it is coming and it is here. So all three tenses. And so preaching is primarily the proclamation of that kingdom. Then once that kingdom is proclaimed then, preaching continues as it seeks to show the implications of Christ as king and our being under his kingship. What does that mean? And therefore you, you'll get all kinds of instructions that come out of the basic proclamation. So we notice that that is what Jesus does and therefore what we should do. Then uh, we noticed his healing ministry uh, thirdly. Now as we move to verse 36, this will be Roman, Roman numeral number 3 on your outline from two weeks ago. Uh, we feel what Jesus feels. It says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. This word compassion is a word that means uh, he felt for them in his guts, in his bowels, literally. In, in uh, the Jewish way of thinking, uh, when you feel affection for someone, we talk about you have a heart for them. Uh, and you're, you have heart palpitations when you're in love. Well, in Jewish uh, uh, idiom, when you're expressing affection, you say it comes out of your bowels. Go figure. I don't know. Maybe it has to do with something that you feel down here when you love. But Jesus' bowels go out to us, if you will. He has bowels of compassion, as, as the KJV used to say. And uh, this is really important for us. We see this several times uh, in Jesus' life. I uh, mentioned a couple of verses there, even in Matthew, where you get this idea of his compassion. Uh, then, of course, in Philippians and in Colossians, Paul tells us also to have compassion for one another. So we're to have bowels of compassion. This is something you have to cultivate because by nature, the only one we have bowels of compassion for is ourselves. So we cultivate actually feeling things for other people. Some of us here in this room have had our feelings deeply wounded over the years. Some of us uh, had uh, childhood backgrounds which just sort of shut us down and put us into a, uh, a scenario where we have a hard time even labeling affections or expressing affections or receiving affection. But the believer is one who's going to increasingly ask the Lord to give him an ability to traffic in these affections. Uh, so we want to copy the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to feel what he feels. And it's a good question for us to uh, ask ourselves you know, when you, when you see a crowd like Jesus saw this crowd, and this was a motley crowd, a very needy crowd, a very poor crowd. When we see crowds of people like in the airport or on the streets or maybe just even in the workplace, how do you think of them? Are they a nuisance or are they just simply, are you completely indifferent to them? Well, Jesus looked at the crowds and he had profound compassion on them. And we might just think about that wherever we go. We're looking at other people. How do we feel toward them? Do we only have affection for them if they agree with our political position? Do we only have affection for them if they're nice and cleaned up and not needy? Do we only have affection for them if they're in our family somehow? Do we only have affection for them if they're in our denomination or our religious group? 
Jesus had affection for crowds of people with all of their needs. We feel what Jesus feels. We must learn to do that. And how do you do it? Well, let's keep moving forward. I I think we'll see uh, how we do that. In verse 36b and 37, I want us to notice, this will be Roman numeral 4, we see what Jesus sees. So if we want to know how we have compassion for people, let's see what he sees. Well, what does he see? First of all, he sees the human condition. In verse 36, we're told, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I've listed several verses there. In Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6, you get the classic Old Testament statement of sheep being lost. So sheep without a shepherd are lost. They have no idea where they are. They're not going to be able to get back home, and they're in dire straits. Jesus looks at crowds of people, and there are crowds of people in this world that we need to think about who are simply lost. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get home. In uh, John 3.18, a verse I've listed there, uh, they are under the wrath of God. So when we look at crowds of people, do you think about this? That by nature, as we're brought into this world, we're all sinners. The wrath of God abides on us, as John 3.18 says. That uh, Jesus didn't come into this world, John says, to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. Condemned? Damned? Yes. The world, the world is already damned. Do you look at crowds of people and just realize that almost in a moment, they're going to be facing something that is so awesome and tragic that our minds cannot even comprehend it. Is there a pity that comes upon the crowds because of that? When you see someone who is trampling everything that, uh, that you uh, believe in uh, on the news, someone who's violating every moral standard that you think is important, do you hate them? Or do you look at, at them as someone who's going to be facing the judgment of God very, very soon? Jesus did. And 2 Corinthians 4, 4 teaches us that the crowds, the unbelieving crowds are blinded. The devil has blinded them so they cannot see. It's it's not that they see and believe exactly what you see and believe. They don't see it. They're blinded. And in 2 Timothy 2, 26, we're told that these people are ensnared and trapped, enslaved. They're in bondage. So they've been, just, just like the slave trade, <clears throat> they've been put in chains and put in the bottom of a ship and blinded to the reality that's around them. Now, that's the kind of condition that they're in. Now, uh, there's no excuse uh, because we're all willfully opposing uh, the Lord and His kingdom. But nonetheless, the other way of looking at it and the way that Jesus and His apostles often looked at it is that those who are violating the Word of God are blind and ensnared. So we must ask ourselves, do we see what Jesus sees? Do we see the human condition? Let me just mention a few things that probably, I mean, and I think it would be a good idea for you to just make notes of these, just so that you can continue to remind yourselves about some of the population in our world. In the world today, there are 33 million AIDS victims. 33 million. That would be, what, about 7 times the population of our state uh, around the world who are, 
who are infected with AIDS. There are 15 million orphans, largely as a result of the AIDS disease. And if you go to any large community in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, you'll just see orphans everywhere, 15 million orphans. There are 30 million people who have been ensnared by the sex trafficking uh, trade that's going on in the world right now. 30 million, largely women and children, young girls. We have more slaves today than we've ever had in the history of the world, and they're largely sex slaves. There are over 40 military conflicts in the world right now with people dying right and left. And as a result of those conflicts, there are 34 million refugees, people who are away from their homes and have no way of getting back to their home and normally as refugees have no uh, means of providing for themselves the basic necessities of life, 34 million. And uh, now in addition to all of this physical pain and loss that Jesus sees and has compassion for and wants us to have compassion for, the worst problem, of course, is those who are lost spiritually, who not only are facing the, the tragedies of temporal pain and deprivation, but who are facing the prospects of eternal pain and deprivation. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, Christ pities those most who pity themselves the least. And lost people don't even know how to pity themselves, but Jesus does. And when you look into our world, we have 16,000 uh, what we call ethno-linguistic groups. That's ethnic groups that have their own language. 16,000 of them. 6,000 of those right now do not have a viable Christian witness within them. So there are 1.8 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, not even in a swear word. That's in our world, 1.8 billion out of the 7 billion that we have in the world. So when Jesus looks at this world, he sees all of that. And we are taught in this text that his bowels of compassion go out for the world. We need to be studying the world ourselves and be sure that we see it the way he sees it and that the decisions we make with our finances, our time and our careers and our efforts, our relationships, our public policy, everything that we do is in light of what we should be seeing in our world, both here in Memphis and around the world. We should be world people. And we'll get this, of course, at the very end of Matthew where he tells us what our main mission is. Go and make disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples. That's our main mission. So that's how you frame up what your mission is. It all, your personal mission has to fit within that large picture of what, who Christ is and how he feels about things and what his purposes are and what he wants his church to do. Notice, secondly, what Jesus sees is the missional mandate. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, he's saying, yes, there's much to be done. There's much good to do out there. And there are many souls to win to Christ. And there are many souls to save. The harvest is plentiful, plentiful but the laborers are few. And what we uh, have here is Jesus uh, give, showing us a little adumbration of what's going to come in the 
Matthew 10 sermon and what's going to come at the very end of Matthew's gospel with the Great Commission, showing us that he sees the need and he looks at us, feeble little disciples though we are, these 12 people with their unbelievably rough backgrounds, and he says, you're the ones to go into the world and do something about it. Uh, let me just say that when, when I think about the missional mandate, what we should be seeing that Jesus sees, I, I usually think of what I call the four great truths of the mission's mandate. And let me give those to you for just a moment. This is kind of a sidebar on mission. But it seems to me that if we get these four truths into our heads, the implication, or, uh, the, yeah, the implication is really obvious. It just, it's self-attesting and self-convicting and self-compelling into the mission field. Number one, when it comes to, and I'm talking now about the mission mandate to lost people, okay? We're talking about their eternal life. Number one, everybody you know is going to heaven or hell. That's number one truth. Everybody, whether you know them or not, every single human being is going to heaven or hell. So everybody in your family is going either to heaven or to hell. There's no middle ground. There's no limbo. There's no second chance. There's no neutral place to go. We are told that when Jesus Christ returns, every soul will be judged. There'll be a general resurrection of the just and the unjust, and everyone will be judged and consigned to one place or the other. So you know in Matthew uh, 25, you have the sheep and the goats, and they're no, they're no geep. They're just sheep and goats. There's nothing in between. So you're either on his right hand or you're on his left hand. Everybody, every human being of all generations goes either to heaven or to hell. Secondly, the second major or great truth of the mission mandate, the only way anyone goes to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way in which anyone goes to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Peter said the same thing in Acts 4.12. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other name. The Bible makes that absolutely clear. If you need a rationale for it, if you need to understand why that is, Paul explains that in detail. In Romans 1 through 3, now at 3.20, he begins to give you the gospel. But up through 3.20, uh, 3.21, he gives you the gospel. Up through 3.20 of Romans, he'll explain why no one can get to heaven apart from Christ. Even if you grew up in the church and you kept all the rituals, even if you did your best to keep the Ten Commandments and you learned it from your mama. Uh, or, on the other hand, if you were an outstanding pagan who never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Those are the two most difficult cases. And in both of those cases, Paul will explain to you why you can't possibly get to heaven on the grounds of your behavior or your belief system. It's, it's not your doctrinal belief system that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. There's only one way. And the reason is, Paul explains, what's demanded of human beings is that we would be like we were created, which was perfect. We were very good. There was no sin. And God will not take sin into His presence. So the bar is impossibly high for someone who is conceived in sin like you and I are. 
We couldn't possibly attain to it. That's the reason that we must have Christ who lived a perfect life in our place and who died a death to take our sin from us. Then by imputation, we get His righteousness. And by imputation, He gets our sin. And now we are acceptable to enter into heaven. That's the reason Christ is the only way. That's the second great truth. Now thirdly, the only way in which you can receive Christ is if you hear the gospel and put your faith in the gospel. Now, you can look at Romans 10 a little later on, and you'll see there that Paul says, so whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, but how can they call on the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless somebody sends those preachers? So Paul is making a clear argument for the necessity of gospel preaching in order for anybody to be in Christ. So in order to be in Christ, you have to hear the gospel and respond to it in faith. Now the reason I stress this is that there are some who are calling themselves evangelical Protestants who are trying to claim that, yes, Jesus is the only way, but he has other ways of engrafting people into himself other than the conventional way of preaching the gospel and believing by faith on Jesus Christ. And I just want to say that's the very argument Paul was taking on in Romans 10 to make it clear that we must send the preachers everywhere. Look, if there's some cheaper, easier, less risky way to do it, let's do it. But if this is the only way that we send missionaries and we send ourselves, and we face the music that's out there, then let's get it done, because that's the only way. And that's what Paul is presenting to us clearly in Romans 10. Now, I uh, understand that maybe we don't know everything. Christ is so gracious, he could, he, he will, He's doing all kinds of things that we're not aware of. And I realize that you can't put Christ in a box. Who would want to put Christ in a box? If I put him in a box, I'm not going to be in that box. I know I won't get saved. I want Christ to be infinitely gracious just like he is. But when Christ himself, through his apostles, teaches us something about how to get in with him, I believe we better take him seriously. And I don't see any exception to that rule in the scriptures. And frankly, I haven't heard any exception to it in the missionary experience over the past 200 years. The witness we have over the past 200 years is that God works through dreams and visions, particularly in the Muslim world. But when he works through those dreams and visions, the one receiving the dream will inevitably come to the Christian to hear the gospel, put their faith in Christ, and then therefore receive eternal salvation. Those are the missionary reports we get. We do not get reports that people have had a vision of Christ with a dream of the gospel and have therefore been saved without any human agency. We don't have reports of that. So it seems as though what the scriptures seem to be saying clearly is in fact confirmed in missionary experience in the modern missionary era. So it would be presumptuous of of us, and it seems to me, frankly, cowardly of us to dream up some other way for people to be in Christ apart from hearing the gospel and responding to him with faith and repentance. That's the third great truth. Here's the fourth great truth I think that compels us. The ones to go and to send 
or ourselves. We're it. God does send angels. But usually when He sends angels, they're here as our servants to mobilize us into the great mission. Human beings are far more valuable and honorable and amazing than we normally imagine. They are the crown of God's creation. And He made us to be His messengers to the lost human race around the world. It is our task and nobody else's. And it's this generation's task, not some other generation. When I look at those four great truths of the Christian mission, uh, it seems to me that the answers to this are very obvious. It requires our best, our whole life, our souls, our entire lives. So that I think the right question for us to ask ourselves over and over again, is my life my best answer to the Great Commission? Is my life my best answer to the Great Commission? And if it's not, then gentlemen, it seems to me we've got to be making adjustments so that we can say my life is my, my best answer. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not, I'm not as smart as the next guy. But whatever he's given me, my life right now is my best answer to advance the kingdom of God here and around the world. Now that's what Jesus sees. Jesus sees the human condition and he sees the missional mandate and he's giving the missional mandate. Now, fifthly, in verse 38, notice that we must pray as Jesus prays. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So when Jesus, with all of this urgency, looking at the crowds who look like sheep without a shepherd, who harassed and help us, uh, the word harass just means cast down. They're just completely cast down. They're, they're impoverished. They're lost. They don't know what they're going, doing. And he sees all this. And he sees what they need. Here's his answer. Pray. And before we ever talk about going or giving, let's be sure that we know the first thing that Christ says to his church to do is to pray. I was so glad to hear, uh, for those of you at Second Presbyterian, which would be a little less than half of you, I suppose, but I was so glad to hear that our missions group, as our conference comes on at the end of next month, is going to be especially pushing the agenda of prayer. We've had about 600 people from year to year in our congregation who have agreed to pray every week for a particular missionary, and I think that missions committee wants to move that number way on up so that we get 1,000 people involved in praying for the mission of Christ. I'm telling you, it is the most important thing to do. As a matter of fact, if you look in Psalm 2, when the father is talking to his son about taking the rule of the kingdom, this is before Christ ever comes, of course, Psalm, Psalm 2, he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You get that? The father says to the son, ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance. Wow. So the son knows. He's read Psalm 2 also, you know. And he knows to ask the father to give him the nations as his inheritance. The devil came to him and said, bow down to me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. He knows better. The father has already said, you don't ask the devil. You ask me, son. You ask me and I'll give the nations to you. And I want to say to you, brothers uh, here in this room, ask him. And he will give the nations as the inheritance to Christ and to all of his people. And one day, you're going to be on the right and the left hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
ruling this universe. And you can look at him. You can say, you know, all we had to do is ask. And it all comes to you. Just ask the Father. And he will fulfill the Great Commission. And he'll do it through us, of course. He'll send us. He'll, he'll inspire us to give. He'll inspire us to go. But we must first ask him. Now that's the prelude to the, the Great Mission sermon that begins with Matthew 10. Let's turn now to that and look at what now Jesus does. He's, he's shown us his own ministry. We've seen his own heart. And now let's see what he does with these 12 apostles. Verse 1 of chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Surely, I, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Amen. Let's notice first of all in verses 1 through 4 that Jesus calls us to his mission. Jesus calls us to his mission. Now there's no mistaking it that this is a peculiar call in one sense to 12 men who, who here alone in Matthew's gospel are called apostles uh, in verse 2. That word apostles, that's the only place you'll find it in Matthew's gospel. It's very clear that those apostles, and they're the only ones in Matthew's gospel who are called apostles, they are particularly sent out by Christ to be messengers of of the the, uh, gospel of Christ around the world. And we honor them and we thank God for them. They have a unique place. Uh, Paul and others describe the apostles in these ways. So in in order to be an apostle, you really need to have three things. Number one, uh, you must have been called personally by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. Uh, and Paul makes much of this, you remember, uh, of his own conversion experience and his call to go to the Gentiles as an apostle. He made it very clear that it was personally from Jesus Christ. Now, this was after the resurrection, so Paul had to explain that because everyone knew that the Jerusalem apostles, their authority was based on the fact that Jesus personally called them 
and sent them into this, this work. And an apostle goes as a, an authorized, empowered representative. It's kind of like if, if uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton goes to Russia and declares what our viewpoint is, she is representing uh, Barack Obama. And anyone who's in their right mind in diplomatic circles knows that when the Secretary of State arrives and passes on a message, the President of the United States has spoken. And if anyone does that, they will do that. Uh, if anyone uh, violates that principle, they will do that at their own risk. And they run the risk of facing the wrath of the Commander-in-Chief of the United States of America because he sent a legate, a representative, with all of his powers to speak for him. Now, it's the same way here. Jesus Christ has given the authority to apostles to speak on his behalf. And that's the reason that uh, the New Testament is largely written by apostles. It's either written by apostles or people like Luke who were learning from the apostles who were, or Mark who were right ne- Luke right next to Paul, Mark right next to, to both Paul and Peter, especially Peter. It appears as though Mark was debriefing Peter as he gave us his, apostle, uh, his epistle, uh, his gospel. So the point is that the New Testament is the apostolic witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, personally empowered by Christ. So the only way you can be an apostle is if you had a personal invitation and calling from Christ to be so. Secondly, an apostle is one who was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. An eyewitness. They saw him with their own eyes, resurrected from the dead, so that they are personal witnesses to Christ. That's the only way you can be an apostle. And for that reason, frankly, I know we all come from different denominational backgrounds, but I really don't think it's, it's very helpful to, to speak of, of uh, pastors as apostles. I think it's very confusing to the people of God. We need to know that the word of Christ has come down through, uh, to us through authoritative means, through people who are specifically commissioned, not like someone in the 21st century, uh, but someone who is personally, specifically commissioned to be an agent of infallible revelation from Christ himself. So those are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And once again, Paul makes much of his eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. So he saw him so much so that he was temporarily blinded by the vision. Paul makes much of that because he says, I'm one who came along lately. I was Johnny come lately, apostle. I'm the least and the last of all the apostles, he says. And the reason is because uh, he had, had to have a particular special revelation from Christ after the resurrection, both to hear his personal call and to be an eyewitness. Now, the third mark of an apostle is that they are workers of miracles, signs and wonders. And, of course, a lot of the, those who would like to claim apostolic office in our own day will sometimes try to claim those kinds of things, but it's a little bit silly. Uh, the, of course, in uh, Jesus' case, you had 30 uh, miracles recorded for us over the scope of just three years of work. With the apostles, all of them together over 30 years, we only have about 10 uh, uh, recorded. So, of course, Jesus did uh, many more and more frequently. But still, the apostles were marked off as those who did signs and wonders as a testimony to the authority they had been given. So there is a sense in which Jesus is especially sending these 12 
or of course we know it's 11 now, don't we? Uh, but he gets replaced with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. But notice furthermore, besides the fact that there's a unique call, notice that the same word called is used. Now, it's a little bit different word actually here, but it's the same root for calling. When you look into the New Testament, you will find over and over again, especially in the epistles of Paul and Peter, that we are the called. So both Paul and Peter use the same calling language to describe ordinary doofus Christians like you and me. So we too are called. And we too are called infallibly. There's nothing wrong with our calling. It's an infallible calling to follow Christ. Now, we didn't hear a voice and we didn't see him personally visibly like the authorized apostles to give us the authoritative, infallible word of God. But we have a calling that is into our hearts and by which we are given the new birth and by which we are called to follow him that is also infallible. The calling's infallible. We don't have the ability to speak infallibly. So we're different from the apostles. But we're the same with the apostles in the sense that we have calling. The Latin word vocare means to call. And we get the word vocation from the Latin word vocare. So we are called. Our vocation is not to be a banker, not to be a preacher, not to be a lawyer, not to be a teacher. The calling is to follow Jesus Christ and to make fishers of men. Or he, he makes us fishers of men. So our calling is to follow Christ. And in following Christ, the essence of that calling, as we see from uh, Matthew 28, is to make disciples. That's your calling. Your occupation is simply one expression of your calling. If you're married... That's just one venue in which you express your calling. Your calling is not to be married. Your calling is not to have this particular occupation. Your calling is to follow Christ in every realm of life. And the way in which you manage every realm of life is to be done in accord with this 30,000-foot view of your overall calling in Christ. So therefore, I'm a preacher... Because it seems to me, I believe guided by the Spirit, but I could have been wrong. I could have had bad pizza the night before I made that decision. Uh, but it was the best decision I could make through prayer and the counsel of the church to be a pastor. And the reason is, it seemed to me and to them that the best way for me to express my calling to follow Christ was to take up this occupation in the church. So you see, my occupation is by inference. My calling is not inferential. It's immediate and infallible. I don't have to think about whether I'm called to be a disciple of Christ. I am. And that's unchangeable and it's eternal. The calling, so to speak, to be a pastor is temporary and conditioned and inferentially discerned. So be sure we understand now, we share calling with the apostles. Our calling is not to be an apostle. Our calling is to be a disciple. And that is our calling. But we're just as surely called as they were. That's what we need to know. Now, in this list of brothers, you also notice it's a pretty motley crew. You can't help but notice that. 
I mean, we know Peter fairly well, and Peter is mentioned 23 times in Matthew, so obviously uh, he's the main one here, and that's the reason even here in this text, Matthew says, first Simon, who is called Peter. So Matthew makes it clear that there's a, there's a primacy in some way to Peter's ministry here. And notice uh, in this list, Matthew's list, he puts Andrew second, because Andrew was his brother. And you'll, you can't help but also notice that some of these people really are interesting uh, to be in the same team. Um, we know that James and John thought everybody else was, was below them. Uh, we won't get into that. But that. One of the few places where they're even mentioned in Matthew's text is when they're wondering how much greater they are than everybody else. But notice, notice toward the end, Simon the Canaanian. Uh, some scholars say, you know, really, it doesn't mean that he was from that he was a Canaanite or either, either from Cana or from Canaan. What it probably comes from is the Aramaic word, a Canaan, or I really should pronounce it, Canaan. And that word means zealot. And in other places, it's translated Simon the Zealot. Now, what was a zealot? A zealot, it's a political zealot. A political zealot in that day hated Romans despised them, and were plotting to undo them and get them out of Palestine. That's what zealots did. So now you have Simon the Zealot. Do you notice also you have Matthew who wrote this, this, epistle, this gospel. He lists himself here, Matthew, as what? The tax collector. And Matthew's making a point, I used to t- collect taxes. Now, who did tax collectors collect taxes for the Romans. So you had Matthew and Simon who were supposed to work out their political differences. One was a Republican and one was a Democrat. And, and I mean, I don't, and they were not moderates, either one of them. They were on the wings of their parties. They were way out here, right wing and left wing. And these guys are in the same church. They're serving on the session together. They're elders together, they're leading together, and they're loving each other. And the reason they love each other is one reason only. They both love Jesus, and he loves both of them. And therefore, 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 they will love each other, and they'll serve side by side. Gentlemen, there's no other way to read the New Testament but to see over and over and over again, God is breaking down walls that men put up. And men who meet Jesus begin to tear down those walls. And I don't know where those walls are for you. It may be a racist uh, wall. It may be a socioeconomic elitist wall. It may be a wall between your little family and everybody else. We create all kinds of walls that keep us from loving people, serving them, and leading them to Christ, and serving in the church together. What you've got to do is do what these men were told they had to do. You cannot be on the team of Jesus unless you're going to receive a tax collector. And you can't be on the team of Jesus unless you're going to have a zealot in your midst. Now, of course, both the tax collector and the zealot are going to repent of everything in their political views that were ungodly. But they're both going to be Democrats and Republicans for the rest of their lives. That's the way it's going to go. And they're going to have very different outlooks on things. Now, they repent of all the wickedness in their background, but they still have their outlooks. And you'll find everywhere you go in the New Testament, 
that people like that are being put together. Couldn't help but make note of that as we move along. But notice that he calls us to his mission. And we could look throughout the New Testament and see the scores of times which, in which we are called the call of God. Now let's look at verse 1b where he gave them authority. And notice that Jesus empowers us for the mission. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. Now, uh, if we just, let's just take our city that was described to us last week in a wonderful way. And you see there's some major problems. Uh, you've got problems with broken families, don't you? You've got problems with abandoned families. The men of the homes are leaving their families, doing what they want to do. You then have other social unrest that comes out of that, and you have a school system that is, uh, has scores of schools on the bubble and that need desperate help, where 125,000 of our young people are being trained in the Memphis City Schools, and then more thousands in the Shelby County Schools. So we've got this major problem in our city. Uh, we have crime, don't we? We have gangs. We have drugs. We have corruption, uh, political corruption, business corruption professional corruption. We have all kinds of corruption. Uh, we have churches that don't preach the gospel anymore and they simply accommodate the sinful appetites of their congregants. We have all kinds of problems. So let me tell you something right here. Uh, he gives us the authority and the power to deal with all of it. Uh, let not anybody here think that the problems of a city get too big for God's people. And when the problems of this city get too big for God's people, then what you're saying is they just got too big for God. And what we have is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about it just a minute. You go all the way out to Matthew 28. And here you have 500 people. And you have 12 who are particularly listening very closely. And Jesus says this to them. All authority, same word, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. I've got it, says Jesus Christ. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. You see the therefore? He's got all the authority and all the power. Therefore, you go. Now, the assumption behind that is right here. He gives us all the authority and all the power that we need. Now, these 12 apostles, one of them committed suicide and was replaced by Matthias. So we have the original 11 plus a new one, and then Paul is added as number 13, right? Let's look at those 13 apostles. Tradition tells us that every single one of them died a pretty gruesome death because of their mission, with the exception of John, who was in exile on the Isle of Patmos until his death. But he was exiled and lonely for decades of his life because he proclaimed the gospel. So the point is, yes, your authority may lead to your cross. It did with these men. But that will honor and glorify God. And that is exactly what we're supposed to do. Don't think for a minute we go into this mission and we come out alive. You don't. You go into this mission and you give your life. You've got the authority to lay your life down. Just like Jesus said, no one takes the authority from me. I have authority to lay my own life down. So do you. If you're following Christ, you take the authority he gives you to lay your life down. You also then take the authority he gives you to announce the kingdom of God in an appropriate way wherever you are. And you take the authority he gives you to heal and serve and cleanse other people who need help. And you have the, all the authority you need to do that in this city, in this nation, and around the world. 
He empowers us for his mission. He never sends us anywhere that he does not give us the power and the authority to do what he told us to do. Wish I had a, uh, time to tell you about a story of a missionary who exercised that power. But you have far more power than you realize you have. Uh, Roman numeral three. Verse 5a, if we move ahead, teaches us that Jesus sends us into the field. He sends us into the field. These 12 Jesus sent out. Now we know that he called them, and we've, uh, we can look in other texts of Scripture where he calls them to be with him. He wants to be with them. But having been with them and promising his presence with them even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20, he then sends them out. So, gentlemen, if you're following Christ, he is both calling you to himself into retreat and he's also sending you out and he's doing both of those things all the time. You're sent. And the word here for sent out is the same word for apostle. So in that sense, we're all apostles. You get it? Apostles are not people with fancy clerical garbs and a stole around their necks or some funny hat on their head. Apostles are Christians with a lowercase a. We've already said the apostles with a big A, those are, they're only, you know, 12 of those. But we're apostles with a little A because we're all sent out. And it's important for us to know that. So what does it mean for us to be sent out? Number one, you've got to learn what the world is about. We need to listen to what we heard last week. If you didn't hear it, please get it on, on uh, the website and learn about Memphis. You have to study the place you're in. What are the problems here. What are the needs here? So you're assessing the field. Jesus did that. The Apostle Paul did that. He was very strategic in the way he looked at it. Secondly, you want to do what Jesus said, pray. So once you see what he sees and feel what he feels, then you do what he says, which is to pray. Having prayed or in your prayers, you're at, one of the things you're asking the Lord to do is to, of course, raise up workers. And guess who's the first worker that would get raised up? You, my friend. So now you're being raised up. So you're, you're learning about your circumstances and you're praying, asking the Lord, first of all, to show you how to mobilize your old little self and get yourself mobilized. Once you get yourself mobilized, then you say to your friend, well, let me tell you what I do. And that's the most important missionary information you can give to anybody. Let me tell you what I do. And that person can see, especially your children, can see that you have thoughtfully applied the gospel and the Great Commission to yourself. So you've learned about your circumstances and then you've prayed. Thirdly, you're going to give yourself to it. You're going to give yourself to it. Now, for most of us, we're working within our own Memphis culture right here. I know you travel places and so on, but generally speaking, your place is here. And you, so you will be here, but you've got to be concerned about people in Uganda. You've got to be concerned about people in Mozambique. You say, how in the world can I do that? I can't even afford to fly over there. I don't have time to fly over there. I'm a busy person. Well, that's the reason we have missionaries. And that's the reason for supporting missionaries is because you are taking Mozambique seriously. And the way you do that is you move missionaries into that place. You say, how do I do that? Well, you get on a team that knows how to assess missionaries, like a church, and then you give to that cause. You say, how much do I give? Well, I don't know. Uh, if you're tithing to your church, why don't you take a tithe of your tithe, at least 1% of your income, and be sure that's going to international mission. If, if 
you get really fired up, you might move that to 2% of your income or 3% or 5%. And if you really want to get fired up about it, you give your tithe to the local work and then give additional work, give additional funds to world missions. After all, you happen to live in the wealthiest nation in the history of humanity. And the most wealthy nation in the history, in human history, and you happen to be in a community within that nation that's fairly well known to be an upper scale community. Okay, so you're sitting on the top of Mount Everest. You don't think of yourself that way, but you are. And by any definition, you are. And we have to be thinking about, is, is the minimum of a tithe appropriate for someone who's in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world and who's in a very comfortable and convenient location? Is a tenth appropriate for you? Doesn't seem like it to me. I think you can tell from reading between the lines here. So let's strategize. What is it I'm supposed to be giving in order to mobilize missionaries around the world? And then lastly, some of you need to be going yourself. Working cross-culturally here in Memphis, moving to other neighborhoods that are not native to you. Some of you need to be moving to other places in the world. And the younger you are, the more seriously you have to take that possibility because your ability to acquire language and Cultural adaptation is greater with your younger age. So that's what it means to be sent, is that we know the church is a, not just a learning church. We are a learning church. The first thing we did to devote ourselves to the apostles' doctrine in Acts chapter 2, but we're also a sent church. Now, notice in uh, verses 6 through 15 that Jesus instructs us about the mission. And let me just give you these five things rapidly uh, for the sake of time. And maybe we can make reference to it next week. Jesus instructs us about the mission. Instructing them, it says in verse 6. Well, what did he instruct them about? Number one, where to go. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Well, when you get to the end of Matthew, you know, you know he's sending us all over the world. But notice here he says, you all start with the church. There are lost people in your church. There are poor people in your church. Before you go to Uganda and Mozambique, let's be sure that you're being faithful to administer the gospel and gospel love and compassion to your own people right there. That's what Jesus is doing. Start with the house of Israel. And B, he, he teaches us what to say. Proclaim as you go, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's learn the gospel. We need to know what to say. And, you know, each of you gentlemen, if you know the Lord, you need to be thinking about what shall I say under different scenarios with people I might run up uh, against in my workplace, in the community, on the Kiwanis Club. What will I say and how will I say it? And you need to be rehearsing that in your own mind and thinking it through and talking with one another in your small groups about what you'll say. Thirdly, what to do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. That just about covers it. You want to know how to bring shalom to a neighborhood? Well, just look looky there and you'll see how to bring shalom to a neighborhood. You say something to them and you do something for them. Thirdly, how to pay or what to be paid, I guess you could say. How about nothing? Don't take any gold or silver. And those of us who are in full-time paid ministry have to be very careful here. Paul says in other places, you know, an ox, you, you know, if the ox is... Grinding out the grain, you should feed the ox, okay? So I'm an ox, and you all feed me. I thank you. Appreciate that. 
Uh, but we must be very careful, those of you who are in paid ministry, and be, be very sure that you don't just do this because you need a job. You know everybody needs a job. And then you begin thinking about your paycheck and how much you're being paid. Uh, you're in it for the wrong reason. It's very dangerous to be in a wealthy culture where most of our Christian leaders are paid. Around the world, that's not true. They're not paid. They get a little, uh, you know, an extra chicken when they preach a sermon on Sunday. That's about it. It's very dangerous with all this money that we have and that our ministry leadership is largely fueled with money. Be very, very careful. Many implications there. You all can talk about it in your groups. Lastly, where to stay. And notice he says, hey, listen, you don't have to beat the door down. Just stay, just stay where you want to stay. Just stay with those who are opening the door. I'll close with this. I think maybe an application here. Some of you know the name Louis Giglio. He's supposed to give the inaugural uh, prayer, uh, the invocation at the inauguration here in a few days. And uh, he just got uninvited. And the reason he got uninvited was 20 years ago, he preached, and he's a very strong evangelical, has conferences called Passion Conferences, where 60,000 young people come and hear the gospel, many of them being converted in those Passion Conferences. He's an outstanding preacher and leader. Uh, he gets invited, then he gets uninvited because 20 years ago he preached a, a, a biblical message on uh, gay sexuality and heterosexual sexuality. And you can listen to it. It's on his website. When he got invited to do the inaugural prayer, he didn't remove that sermon or any other controversial one from his website. He just let it be. Just let it be. And he gets uninvited because his viewpoint is not allowed. And, uh, you know, you can get very angry over that, I have to admit. I'm, I'm not real happy about it myself. Uh, the inaugural committee decides that when someone has a biblical viewpoint on sexuality, they're out of it. They're, di they're dismissed. They're excluded. It goes back to the whole, whole idea of the intolerance of today's understanding of tolerance. It's completely intolerant. You'll find many doors shut. Instead of just getting angry and throwing things or hating people, remember something very important. We love the crowds. Even if those crowds are in Congress or in the courts or even in the White House, we love the crowds. They're harassed and helpless, lost like sheep without a shepherd. And our job is to pray that the Lord raise up harvesters. Our job is to go at the risk of our own lives and reputations and being uninvited to a few places. But our job is not to accommodate the Word of God to what's going on around us. And our job is not to beat the door down and insist that we should be welcome in every single place. No, you say right here. You just go where you're given peace and you give the peace of the Lord back. But he says this. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for someone who has an opportunity to hear the gospel and flatly turns it down. So listen, you don't have to exercise judgment on anybody. That's not your job. That's going to be taken care of. Don't worry about it. Here's our job. Let's love the crowds, every single one of them. Regardless of their outlook, their political views, whatever they do, let's love them and serve them and continue to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the king is coming back, that he's offering, he's offering a reprieve to anyone who will turn to him and he will forgive all their past sins. Just come on in. All of you will come. And where the door is open, go in the door. Where the door is closed, wipe your feet off, go on the next door. Stop complaining, get on with the mission. I think that's what Jesus is saying, don't you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel mission. Help us to enter it again today and to carry it out with courage and tenderness and love and perseverance for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.